Welcome to another thrilling episode of Alt Swift X's Game of Thrones Abridged. We're up to episode 86, and my, oh my, that's a big number, isn't it? I'd say it's even bigger than 85. Possibly bigger than 85 and a half, but I wouldn't know. I'm no math scientist. Today we're going to be abridging Daenerys 1, A Clash of Kings, the first Daenerys chapter in the second book of the Game of Thrones series. And this is uh, for those, for those, for those who aren't keeping score. Last time we saw Daenerys, she was striding into a fire and you thought she was dying, but she was hatching dragons out of stone, out of, out of, out of eggs that were fossilized, and she brought life out of the death. And this chapter continues the theme. This, this chapter is about death versus life. It's about rebirth. It's, it's got heavy, heavy, heavy sort of religious ideas. We're getting biblical in this one. We're talking about following stars. We're talking about miracle, miracle, spiritual, lyrical individuals. We're talking about guiding stars. We're talking about three wise men. We're talking about Christ. Uh, there's all sorts of religious ideas going on here, explicit and implicit and otherwise, and I'm so glad you're here to share it. Uh, it's been a while, it's been a hot minute since the last episode, but I think this is going to be a goodie, so welcome all. So, the first line of this chapter is, The Dothraki named the comet Shierakia, the Bleeding Star. So this is the book, if you recall, in which the red comet, the bleeding star, appears above Westeros, and everyone interprets it in a different way. And, spoiler, everyone seems to think it means that they are cool dudes who will win, because that's what people want to believe. We all want to believe that God is on our side, as the Blues Brothers once said. But, spoiler, God can't be on everybody's side, because people are on different sides. It's a shame. You'll notice that the term Shierak Kiwa, Shierak, sounds rather like Shiera, doesn't it? Shiera Seastar is, of course, one of the bastard daughters of Aegon IV Targaryen, known as the Unworthy, and Shiera Seastar is associated with stars, and so Shierak Kiwa means bleeding star in Dothraki. Could there be a coincidence there? Isn't it a bit weird that Shiera Seastar has a name that has a meaning in the Dothraki language? Like, does that mean that she has a Dothraki name? Or is there just like a common linguistic etymological root behind both Shiera's name and the Dothraki language? Is that what's happening? I don't know. I'm not a Dothraki etymologist, although someone is. Um, I don't re remember his name, but there is an official Dothraki expert who, who worked with the Game of Thrones TV show to develop that language, so I don't know. Maybe someone should tweet him, but Shierak Kiwa, that's interesting. So, everyone interpreted this comet differently, and the old men mutter that it omens ill. But Daenerys Targaryen thinks, It is the herald of my coming, and the gods have sent it to show me the way. So Daenerys, like everyone else, is interpreting this comet in a way that is favorable to her. But, I mean, that old, the old men saying that it's a bad omen, uh, they might be right. Because, like, I don't know if any of y'all have seen this thing called Game of Thrones Season 8, 
But uh, Daenerys did some bad things in that one. Those dragons did some bad, fiery work. And so maybe those old men in this chapter were correct when they said that the comet omens ill. But Daenerys says the gods have sent it to show me the way. And there's all sorts of, like, god talk in this episode. It gets pretty intense. Um... God, I hope that there isn't a streaming problem right now. It's It looks like there might be some streaming quality issues, but don't worry, it'll be recorded, so uh, we'll upload it later if need be. And so, there's lots of God talk, and I'd like to bring y'all attention to some Bible stuff. So, uh, so in the Bible, there was this guy called Jesus Christ, JC. He's a great dude, apparently. And uh, when he was born, there was this star. There was this miraculous star above Bethlehem. And these three wise men came to look for Jesus because of the star above. Um, And this was interpreted as a miracle. And some people saw it as a prophetic miracle. Here's a line out of the Bible, Numbers 24, 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. That is some that is some quality biblical shit, and it's something that George Martin has cribbed here, I think, because it's about the birth of a savior, Daenerys Targaryen. It's about the birth of dragons, and it's about some about some kind of religious quest to get there. So that's exciting. Um, and so they're talking about the comet, and uh, the handmaid Doria she quails. And quailing, of course, is named after the bird quail. There's there's a kind of bird called a quail, and it quails a lot, so that's why we say quail. To quail is to sort of, like, hesitate, to sort of jump back, to sort of fear, to sort of shake. It's an expression of anxiety. It's an expression of fear. That's what quailing means. And Dorea quails, and she says, That way lies the Redlands, a grim place and terrible But Daenerys says that, well, no, 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 we got this magical comet, and the comet is the way that we must go. But then Daenerys admits inside her thoughts, privately, she thinks that, well, in truth, that's the only way that's open to me. So Daenerys, on the one hand, is trying to say that, like, yo, this is like divinity, this is God, this is inspired, we've got to follow this star, this is the way. But she's admitting that, well, that's actually the only way. So in this case, like, the divinity and just simple pragmatism are lined up, and I think that's one of the themes of this chapter. Like, it's about, like, this spiritual... Uh, force that's that Daenerys says is guiding her, but at the same time, she's just being pragmatic. She's just doing what she needs to do to survive. And so it's about how, like, religion and magic and the ideas of religion and magic are sometimes tools that are used to justify, like, what you were going to do anyway. It's a pragmatic thing, not just a magical thing. Like Melisandre. Like, Melisandre is someone who has visions and who believes in gods. But when we get into her head in, in Book 5, A Dance with Dragons, we we experience her thoughts. And she thinks about how she manipulates 
things. She she tricks people. She uses all sort of dusts and potions and lotions to make it look like the power of God is with her when that isn't necessarily the case. So we got some people in the chat talking about like what what is Daenerys's relationship with gods? What is her religious affiliation? Um, and yeah, Daenerys's religion is ambiguous. She doesn't really believe in the faith of the seven. She doesn't believe in law. She seems to believe in herself. And I think that's what this chapter is about. I mean, there's a line in Game of Thrones season seven where Daenerys says that she has faith in Daenerys Targaryen. And that's what keeps her going. And I think that's true in the books too. I think that Daenerys believes in herself and anything else is just sort of ancillary to that. She certainly isn't, you know, a devout follower of the Faith of the Seven. She certainly isn't a devout relorist. The Valyrians apparently worshipped lots of different gods. And in this chapter, we're about to get up to it, she names her dragons... Um, no, no, she, well, she learns that the older dragons were named after Valyrian gods, but she names gods after her own pals. So we'll get up to that. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Daenerys follows the comet. She's in the desert, she's with her Dothraki, she's just birthed her dragons, and they're in a tight spot, because uh, the Dothraki rebelled against her when Drogo died, and so she's trying to get her ragged band of followers to survive, and she's leading them into the Red Waste, and they're following the comet. Um, because she doesn't want to go into the Dothraki Sea, because if they bump into other Dothraki, the Dothraki will just wipe her out. Um, they can't go to the lands of the Lazarene, to the Lamb Men, because even the Lamb Men would wipe them out, because their current Kalasar is so small and weak. Um, which is, which is a big L, I would say. Like, when even the Lamb Men can wipe you out, you know that you, that you ain't shit. Uh, you know you ain't tough. Um, and they could go south down river for the ports at Marine and Yunkai and Astapor. But down there are the flesh markets that fester like open sores on the shores of Slaver's Bay. And so they're worried that they'll get sold into slavery if they go south down there. So they're, so they're, so they're between a rock and a rock and a rock and a hard place. And the only way to go is f- to follow the comet into the Red waste. And so Daenerys is like, yeah, but like those other Dothraki, like, like they were my pals a moment ago. They're not going to like cause problems for me. Copono, he was a cool dude when he was in, in Drogo's Kalasar, but Jorah Mormont says, Carl Pono spoke you gently. Carl Pono will kill you. Because, you know, he's his own Kalasar now. And, and that line to me sort of echoes the line about Rhaegar. Like, remember when Jorah says about Rhaegar that, that Rhaegar fought nobly, Rhaegar fought valiantly, and Rhaegar died. It's sort of the same sort of, like, grammar sentence structure when he says, Carl Pono spoke you gently, Carl Pono will kill you. And it's the same sort of message in that line that's talking about, like, well, you think everything's fair, you think everything's noble, you think everything's good, well, it's not. People are actually arseholes. Game of Thrones is all about questioning, sort of, like, heroism, questioning chivalry, and this is within that pattern. So, Daenerys's weak little Kalasar ain't shit. Um, even her dragons, her dragons are very impossibly valuable, but her dragons are far too young to be, like, useful in, like, combat or anything. Uh, one swipe from an Arak would put an end to them. And, in fact, they're kind of a liability, because every man who sees them will want them, 
Jorah says. So, like, they're incredibly valuable, but they can't really defend themselves, so they're just kind of like a giant target on your head. Everyone wants to take her dragons. Um, And I think that's sort of a broader message about power in Game of Thrones. Power is kind of a liability. Power can be a problem for you. Like, if you sit on the Iron Throne, the Iron Throne will cut you up. There are so many people destroyed by power in this story by the way shriftos can you tell me in the chat is the stream quality okay because like it looks a little shaky on my end but can you all hear okay i hope you can let me know um and so everyone wants the dragons and daenerys is defensive and fierce and she says these dragons are mine they were born from my faith and my need given life by the deaths of my husband and my unborn son and miriam as i walked into the flames they drunk milk from my swollen breasts no man will take them from me while i live Great. Thanks, guys. Sounds like the stream quality is okay. So, yeah, Daenerys is incredibly fierce and protective, as she needs to be in this life-or-death situation. And I've got, like... I, you know, so, so we, she talks about a faith here, which I again think echoes like the season seven line. We also, of course, have this reminder of like the, the, the sacrifice, the logic of sacrifice in this story. You need death to bring life. And so the deaths of Drogo and her unborn son, Rago and Miriam Asda all contributed to this blood magic soup that, 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 re, that resulted in the births of the dragons. I, I wonder if like you could link those three specific deaths to the three specific dragons dragons who were hatched like it was three people who died drogo rago and miriam Asda. i wonder if each of those three souls correspond to each of the three um dragons uh lord, lord garland in the chat suggests that milk of swollen breasts could be used to make milk of human cheese I haven't tried that personally, but I won't knock it until I do. Um, and yeah, I do, ha- I do have questions. I have questions about the swollen breasts. Um, chiefly, like, you know my stance about about lizards, right? Like, I know I've said some controversial things about reptiles on this channel in the past, but like, specifically, this this chapter says that Daenerys Targaryen breastfeeds her dragons. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but dragons are lizards. They are reptiles. And and yet it is mammals. It is specifically mammalian organisms that drink milk from their parents. Why would a lizard have an instinct to drink milk? That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, not to mention, like, like it's not only interphylum, like, it's not only, like, different parts of the biological tree of life. It's, I, mean, I mean, it's different species. How many creatures drink the milk of other creatures? Lord Garland points out in the chat, they don't have lips built for sucking. Shiera says, do dragons have puckery lips? We're asking the real questions here, guys, because for sure, lizards are not good kissers. I've, I've hooked up with a lot of lizards in my time, and none of them are good kissers. Um, because they're just a whole other bag of fruit, you know? Um, so I'm struggling to imagine dragons nursing at the breast of a mammal. That just is weird to me. Uh, someone in the chat says that platypuses do weird things. Lord Gulland claims that cockroaches make milk. 
That might have just blown my mind. Is there a real thing called cockroach milk? And if so, what does it taste like? And if so, can you send me some so I can put it on my Weetabix? Because my goodness, I would love to 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 experience cockroach milk if I was if I was brave enough. Brian says that humans will drink milk from anything. <laughs> uh, Doge says that Mark Zuckerberg has lips. I mean, does he? Or does he have, like, silicon replicant approximations of lips? You know, th- those are... Uh, th- they might look human, but I don't know if it actually is. Welcome, Raphael, to the chat. Hadass says that platypus are an abomination, which I feel is a bit rough. One of my cousins is a platypus, um, and and she's a great person. And I, you know, is she an abomination? Maybe. She's got the face of a duck and the poison spurs of a, of a, of a poisonous Galapagos tortoise. But, you know, she, she, she brought some really great gifts to my wedding. Anyway, reptile shade aside, uh, Daenerys was recently burned in a pyre. I don't know if you guys know that, but Daenerys walked into a fire and lived. Um, and she was unburned, but her hair was burned away in the pyre. And so, like, for, for, for the start of this book, Daenerys is bald. Her, her hair was burned away, which is, like, a pretty strong look. Uh, but before we move on, uh, Lady Bladebinder says that humans milk oats and almonds. And that's a good point. Like, if we're going to drink almond milk and we're going to drink oat milk, like, it's not that weird to drink cockroach milk and 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 cow milk and everything else. You're not wrong. But my only question is, if the dragons will drink Daenerys' milk, will they drink almond milk? That's something I'd like to see. Um, uh, apparently Glidus is in the chat. And, uh, and Glytus has some hot takes when it comes to Drogo's soul transfer. That's, that's not a concept I know much about. You guys will have to check out Glytus' channel to learn more. I'm sure he can inform y'all. Anyway, so Daenerys' hair burned away in Drogo's pyre, and I think it's a goddamn screaming shame, um, that they didn't do that in the TV show. I think Daenerys in the TV show with her hair burned bald would be, would be cool, because, like, it's it it shows how transformative and destructive Daenerys's rebirth is, but also it shows it also it also contributes to like the rebirth theme because like a, a a bold like babies are bold. I'm gonna drop some hot facts. I don't know if you guys know this, but babies are bold. Well, usually sometimes they have some hair, but but. The, the fact that I'm trying to establish here in this Socratean syllogism is that babies are bold. And so if you're trying to symbolically communicate rebirth, I think boldness is a good thing to use because it indicates that you're a little babykins. You're a little wee babby and you're being born. And so I think it makes sense for Daenerys to be bold. I mean, if you want another example, how about like Neo in The Matrix, in The Matrix movie? When Neo comes out of the utero pod in the robot town, uh, he has no hair. And I think that that is part of the rebirth thing. I mean, that that scene is a very obvious on-the-nose birth metaphor, what with the sort of ambiotic fluid and, and all of that. So um, if Neo did it, why don't you? Whenever I'm in a crossroads in my life, I just ask, what would Neo do? Um, and it's usually punch men in suits. And that's the reason why I got arrested last year. 
<clears throat> so Daenerys goes bald what with what with all the the flames and the glaven and um she instead wears the skin of the Hraka that Drogo had slain. So if you recall, a Hraka is a kind of a white lion that lives in the Dothraki Sea and Drogo went hunting for this white lion and killed one and gave Daenerys the pelt. It's kind of like the medieval equivalent of like, you know, when you give your significant other like your hoodie as just like this cute way of like feeling connected. Giving someone your hoodie is is basically giving someone your hracker pelt. Um, and there's still an option of of doing that. Like it's 2019, but you can still go and like hunt a lion and, and give and give your Give your 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 favorite person its pelt. Just make sure you don't go after an endangered lion. Just only only you can only do it to a lion that's already about to die of old age. I think that's the only acceptable uh, lion kill these days. But I'm not an expert. Maybe ask a lion. So. They're following the comment. No, but I think what's important about this Hrakar is that it demonstrates Daenerys' commitment to a Dothraki identity as well as to a uh, Targaryen identity. I mean, the dragons represent the the birth of her Targaryen identity, but the Dothraki Hrakar that she's wearing indicates a, a commitment to her Dothraki heritage. And like she's and you know she's talking about all these sorts of gods, even though she's sort of pretty non-denominational. Like Daenerys represents like a a a convergence of lots of different, like, cultural, religious ideas, and she just sort of picks whatever's most powerful to her at the time, I think. So there's, 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 there's a sort of syncretism, I think is the word, in what Daenerys's ideology is. And so everyone's treating Daenerys as like a prophet, as like a goddess, because she was she's the unburned. She just hatched dragons like crazy stuff is happening. Um, and so and so Daenerys says, "We follow the comet," and no word was raised against it. She's the unburned. She's the mother of dragons, and her word is law. And you can feel like the responsibility that Daenerys is feeling here, like like the terror of being a prophet. I mean, ha- I mean, I mean, think of it from her point of view. Like she did something that felt like a good idea at the time, which is walking into a fire and hatching these dragons. She did not anticipate having all these dozens of Dothraki looking to her as their as their salvation. You know, how is she going to handle the responsibility of being looked to for guidance from so many people when that was never what she asked for? Can you imagine the terror of having followers like that and having to give them words that have meaning? Wouldn't that be deeply existentially horrifying like you need to keep up the pretense in order to make them feel safe and in order to give them their sense of meaning even though your humanity is just as vulnerable as theirs you got to like speak with some kind of authority and as though you have some sort of divinity even though you don't and you got to keep up the charade for all their sakes isn't that terrifying i think that's what daenerys is feeling so they ride by night in order to take refuge from the sun during the day, and this is no kindly country. They leave a trail of dead and dying horses behind them. Um, people are asking how old Daenerys is. She's 14 in this chapter in book two at the moment. She's 14 years old. And again, like like George Martin t- does more description of Daenerys' 14-year-old breasts in this chapter than seems strictly necessary but uh, whatever floats his boat. So they're traveling through this kindly country, and guys, 
we are now on page three. Uh, so her little Kalisar is dying, and it's like crazy. But yeah, as as uh, as Michaelio says in the chat, if she looks back, she is lost. That's definitely a concept in this in this chapter. Daenerys's faith and Daenerys's fierceness is what drives her on and what keeps her people alive. And she must always soldier on, no matter what her doubts are, no matter what, she has to continue because if she looks back, she is lost. Even if she's wrong, even if she's causing harm, she must march on to survive. If she looks back, there's going to be pillars of salt everywhere, and man, I've had enough saline as it is, so she's got to keep on marching. Um, I must be their strength. I must show no fear, no weakness, no doubt. However frightened my heart, when they look upon my face, they must see Drogo's queen. She felt older than her 14 years. If ever she had truly been a girl, that time was done. So this is like a really powerful moment, like where you can see Daenerys turning to her her feeling of 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 magic, intense faith, destructive, prophetic force, and she does that because it is necessary to keep herself and her people alive. It is a pragmatic thing. The d- divinity is a pragmatic thing. It's to live. Um, so three days into the march, the first man dies. They're walking through the desert. They've got the weak and the elderly and people are dying, dropping like flies. Um, there are blood flies swarming on the corpse. And George Martin does like putting the word blood in front of things. You got like blood riders. You got like blood magic. You got like blood, blood, bloody, blood, blood. Everything's bloody. Um, but that's just George Martin's style. And, um... And when the first man dies, Daenerys orders for the weakest of the horses to be sacrificed so that the dead man can go mounted into the Nightlands. Which I think is is a nice, small, significant moment, because, like, Daenerys is... She's doing something in keeping with Dothraki tradition, because they believe that you need a horse if you're going to ride in the afterlife. Uh, But Daenerys is careful to choose only the weakest horse as a sacrifice. And you'd think that, like, sacrificing a weak horse is less of a sacrifice than sacrificing a strong horse right um but so so that's a combination of like pragmatism and spiritualism right like daenerys is making a magical religious sacrifice for religious purposes but she's also being pragmatic and practical by only sacrificing the least valuable horse like that that combination that duality between like faith and reason is i think central to this chapter and indeed it's central to the first season of lost look one day there's gonna be some hot frothing content about lost season one on this channel i can feel it in my giblets um so the first man dies and then Two nights later, an infant girl perishes, and her mother's anguished wailing lasted all day. This is one of those things that's, like, very emphasized in the books, is, like, the suffering of the common people, which is not something that's very evident in the TV show. The TV show focuses way more on on the main characters, especially in the later seasons, but the books are very much about how average normal people are affected by war. Um... Warm Soul Lights in the chat says that I think that shows that Danny doesn't really believe in the ritual and is only doing it for PR. I, I think that, like, real talk, that there's not much of a difference. Like, performing a ritual, saying the words, even if you don't think it's real, like, the performance of it, I think, has a realness to it. Something like, I mean, I mean, not, not to be edgy, but like, but like, Nietzsche had this thing about, like, lightning, 
lightning is the flash. Lightning is the sound. Lightning is the strike. Lightning does not exist outside of a lightning strike. The point being that, like, being something and doing something is the same thing. You can't be a lightning strike without striking lightning. And, and, and the idea is that, like, whatever you do is what you are. Even if you don't, like, believe in it, like, it's, it's, it's real. Um, it, it, to the extent that you do it. Like, I think that as people, since we, you know, we live in brains, we think that thoughts are important. Like, hot take, I don't think thoughts are, are as important as we think we are. I think that thoughts are something that happens after we do what we were going to do anyway, and thoughts exist to justify the thing that we just did. Like, you can, you, you can, there's different theories of mind. Like, maybe one theory of mind is that we think that we're going to do something, and then we do it. But another theory of mind is that we do the thing that our brain biology was going to make us do, and then we use thoughts to justify it. Like, they've done studies. They've done studies where they're like, look at this clock, and when you feel like it, move your hand. And then tell us, at what time on the clock did you decide to move your hand? And at the same time, they plug the person into, like, an MRI, into, like, a brain scan. And what they find in these studies, these real-life studies, is that people people move their hand, they, they, they do the movement before the person decides to move their hand. Like, when people report what time it was when they decided to move their hand, that time is after what the brain scan reveals is the time that they started moving their hand in their brain. So, so the point is that, like, there is, like, scientific evidence that our thoughts don't precede our actions. Our thoughts are merely justifications and, and, and conscious rationalizations of our actions. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that maybe our thoughts are a bit, are a bit bullshit. Maybe we don't exist outside of what we do. Maybe we are lightning. We are flash. Hashtag Schwifto. Okay, so anyway, that was what we call a tangent, but the point is that Daenerys is embodying religious stuff. Um, Christine is off to pick pumpkins with her daughter. Have a great time with the pumpkins, Christine. And maybe check out, there's a podcast called Ologies, which is about, like, conversations with, like, scientists and experts on different ideas. Uh, Ologies just did an episode about pumpkins. So if any of y'all are looking for pumpkin facts, I recommend Ologies. It's a good podcast. Anyway, so we're on chapter three. We're, we're rip-roaring through this chapter. And it's time to talk about this, uh, the Red Waste. The Red Waste, spoiler, it's a bad place to be. Um, it's dry as dead men's bones. There's no water, there's no food. And if there are gods out here, they are hard, dry gods. Deaf to prayers for rain. Personally, if I'm going to have a god, I want a soft, wet god. Like, if, 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 if I have to choose... Between hard, dry gods and soft, wet gods. I'm going to choose soft, wet gods 99% of the time, but that's just me. Uh, and then we get a food description. So apparently what people are living off at the moment is clotted mare's milk and flat bread and dried meat. That's what they're living off as they march through through the waste. But they're, mostly they're eating like dead horses because uh, all the horses are dying as they're marching. Death follows death. There is something incredibly, like, existentially horrifying about eating the dead and the starved 
in order to stave off death and starvation, you know, like it's this sort of terrifying closed system where you're eating the dead to not be dead, but then some of you are dead and then you get undead. It's all, it's all a worry. It's all a problem. So don't eat dead people. I mean, don't eat live people either. If you have to choose between eating dead people and live people, I recommend eating dead people. Um, that's the official Alt-Swift X. Uh, idea there. Um, someone says, what about the vegans? Please consider the vegans, Ingrid says. But, uh, I don't think there's a lot of vegans out here. They say there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, there's no vegans in the red waste. I think that's the fact of it. T-B-H. Uh, we got a pretty innovative idea from, from Lord Garland here saying, what about you eat the living without killing the living. And I think that's the sort of innovation that will see us well through the post-apocalyptic future. Because, yeah, like, they say that the Mongolians in the Mongolian steppes, like those, like, Genghis Khan blokes, apparently, I, I mean, from what I'm told, they used to, like, cut the horse that they were riding and suck and drink down the horse blood from the living horse and then let the wound heal and close as a way of like getting nutrients without without killing the horse which is a pretty fucking metal thing to do i haven't tried it but i've heard good things um hadas in the chat says that only one population in the world have a gene that allows them to eat people cuz yeah there are problems if you eat human uh, brains especially, isn't there? Don't you get those prions and stuff? It'll blend up your brain. It's not a good time, so yeah, don't eat people. Unless you've got that gene, and then go for it. Um, so shit's getting dire. Uh, Doria is getting really sick. Um, her soft golden hair is turning brittle as straw, and Daenerys hungers and thirsts with the rest of them. The milk in her breasts dries up, her nipples crack and bleed, and the flesh falls away from her until she's lean and hard as a stick. So Daenerys is suffering along with the rest of them. I mean, like, some people complain, oh, Daenerys has it too easy, she doesn't have to suffer like Jon does. Daenerys fucking suffers. She suffers along with her people. And, like, she doesn't have to as much. Like, she, like, gives people her own personal water and she does all these altruistic things. Like, Daenerys, Daenerys is living for others in many ways. What drives her is, is her drive to, to, to help others, often. And she thinks of all the people she's lost. Daenerys has lost, like, pretty much everyone who she's ever cared for. And everyone, all of her family. Her father Ares was slain before she was born. Her splendid brother Rhaegar died as well. Her mother died bringing her into the world. Willem Darry, who, like, took her, who took her overseas, who looked after her when she was young. Willem, Willem Darry, who must have loved her after a fashion, was taken by a sickness. Isn't that so sad that Daenerys is so, so desperate for love that she's like, oh, Willem Darry, this old knight, I mean, I, I guess he must have loved me in a way. Like, Daenerys is so sort of, she, she, she needs love and she hasn't got it. And she thinks about Viserys as well and Khal Drogo. Like, Khal Drogo is the closest thing that she has to love and he was he was raping her for a long time. That was an, an incredibly fucked up relationship even, like, towards the end when she decided she loved him. So Daenerys has had nothing but loss 
and suffering and fucked up shit. And so now all of that horrible th- stuff that has happened to her has just made her believe more in herself and her, and her need to live. The gods had claimed them all, she thinks, of the people who have died, but they will not have my dragons, Danny vowed. They will not. So Daenerys is sort of, like, invoking the gods. She's saying that, like, oh, the gods are guiding us, but she's also saying, fuck you, god. God has taken away, the gods have taken away everything that I've loved, everything that I've cared about. So fuck them. I'm going to defy them. I'm going to be my own god. And that's what she's doing. She's embodying divinity in herself. And she describes her dragons. Her dragon's wings are like delicate fans of translucent skin. Uh, And they're very skinny. Most of them is neck, tail, and wing. Um, so they're very, they're very sort of weak and little things. Um, and the dragons refuse to eat uncooked meat. Uh, they only eat cooked meat. So they char the horse meat and then the dragons eat. And Daenerys looks and she marvels at how the dragons, the dragons generate heat. Heat pours off the dragons. So palpable that on cold nights their whole bodies seem to steam. And I think it's very significant that the dragons the dragons emit heat like that. Because if you'll remember in Book 4, Aemon Targaryen describes the prophetic sword Lightbringer. Lightbringer, which is this symbol of, of Azor Ahai, the prophesied hero, uh, said to said to bring bring the dawn against the White Walkers. And and Amon says that Lightbringer generates its own heat. And so, and the reason why Amon rejects Stannis's supposed Lightbringer is that Stannis' Lightbringer does not emit heat. The dragons do. And so some people think that the dragons... Like, Lightbringer is a metaphor for dragons. And by the birth of Daenerys' dragons, she metaphorically fulfills the prophecy of Azor Ahai having the sword Lightbringer. Because certainly, like, Daenerys' rebirth... Uh, with these dragons and hatching the dragons, it seems like a prophetic Azor Ahai sort of a thing. So um, I think I think uh, this whole yeah, hot dragons thing supports that. So those dragons are hot. Next page. Um, we still roll, and so Aegon's dragons, uh, Daenerys's ancestor Aegon the Conqueror, he had dragons named Vega and Meraxes and Beleriand the Black Dread, and these dragons were named after Valyrian gods. And we don't know much about the Valyrian gods. We know that it was like a polytheistic sort of society. There were lots of different gods worshipped by different people. Um, but it's but it's said in the World of Ice and Fire world book that the Valyrians, like gods, were kind of a meme to them. Like they like they sort of believed in their own power more than they believed in in the gods. And I think that's pretty true of Daenerys as well. Like I don't think she believes in gods so much as she believes in herself. But um, Beleriand the Black Dread, Aegon's great giant dragon. Apparently, he had fire that was as black as his scales. And I'm. Gonna going to be honest, I don't know what the fuck black fire looks like. Can you imagine black fire? Like, does it emit light? Like, how does that work? I don't know. Um, apparently we've got some issues with the stream quality. I'm sorry about that, but we're going to, uh, upload the full audio later, so don't worry. We're still rolling. And so... Ago, the Dothraki, after Daenerys tells Ago about Beleriand, Ago says that, well, I mean, your dragon Drogo, that is Beleriand come again. And if you'll recall, 
Uh, Balerion the Black Dread, eh, Balerion burned some shit. Balerion burned a lot of people, and Balerion burned a lot of castles. Balerion was, like, maybe not, like, a great dude as far as, like, dragon dudes go. So, like, I think there's definitely a lot of, like, ominous shit happening in this chapter. This is about embracing power. This is about rebirth. Um, but, but, but rebirth and power involves people getting burned. Because as Davos, and uh, as Salador San tells us about the legend of Azor High, like, insofar as you believe that the dragons represent Lightbringer, um... Lightbringer, Salador San says, Lightbringer is fire and fire burns, and the same is true of the dragons. Azor Ahai is not like a purely like heroic figure. Azor Ahai embodies power, like magic divine power, and that kills people just as much as it helps people. So there you go. Welcome back to the stream. There was a bit of a hiccup. Um, so uh, Daenerys says that I'm going to call... I'm going to call these dragons not after Valyrian gods. We're going to name them after the people who the gods have taken from me. I'll name my dragons Rhaegal for my brother Rhaegar and Viserion for Viserys because even though Viserys was cruel and weak, he was my brother still and the dragon will do what Viserys could not. So there's sort of this nice redemptive forgive forgiving thing about naming the dragon Viserion. Daenerys is acknowledging that Viserys was terrible, but she's saying that I'm I'm going to believe in this dragon as a symbol of Viserys redeeming his shittiness in a way. And and the black dragon will call Drogo. And this is another like defiant like fighting against the gods sort of thing because Daenerys is saying that you know you will not take more lives from me. The gods have taken everything I've loved, but they will not take more. And I think by naming her dragons after the lost ones that the gods have taken from her, that's another sort of defiant gesture that Daenerys is making against the gods in order to say that I myself am my own god, you know? Um, which is either very inspiring or very blasphemous, depending on your personal flavor. Um, so Doria, the handmaiden who taught Daenerys how to fuck good, Doria dies. She takes a fever, it gets worse, her lips and hands break out, she falls off her horse, and she doesn't get and she doesn't get back up. And so it's a tragic death for Daria. Um, in the TV show, of course, in season two of Game of Thrones, Daria betrays Daenerys. Daria hooks up with Zarazo and Daxos and tries to sell out Daenerys in a weird sort of deviation from the books. But uh, in in the in the book, she dies, sadly and tragically. And all of the People in the Kalasar are saying that, oh, the comet has just led us to hell. We're dying one by one. We'll never get out. The comet led us to hell. And here's the thing about, like, magic prophetic signs and, like, hashtag religion generally. Um, when it works out, everyone wants to hear the good word. Like, when your faith turns out to be true, it's like, whoa, faith works. When faith doesn't work and when you do die in the desert by following the comet... You, you you tend not to hear that story. The pe- you, only, you only hear the stories from the people who succeed, right? I mean, th- I think there's a name for that kind of bias. Su- survivor's bias, right? Like, we, we always hear stories from the people who lived. We always hear stories from the people who succeeded, from the people who have platforms. Whenever someone tells you that all you've got to do is believe in yourself and you'll succeed... Uh, it's not true, because for every person who believed them in themselves and succeeded, there's a hundred persons who believed in themselves and failed. We just don't hear from those people. So, 
you know, just just keep that in mind. Survivor's bias, it's a thing. Anyway, so Jorah is like, uh, we're off the map. We've gone so far east, I don't even know what's going on. Um, beyond Karth, there's the, there's just kingdoms, there's cities full of wonders, Yi-T, a shy by the shadow, but I haven't seen any of this shit, like, this is, this is mystery town to me. And of course, in this, at, at this point in the story, when George R. R. Martin was writing the story, he had not drawn a map beyond Karth. Karth was the edge of the world, and it was only during the lands of ice and fire that George Martin drew and, 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 and worked out all these other places to the east, like Yi-T and Ashai, which up until this point were only names they were only concepts and it's only later that they were mapped out but anyway so things are looking pretty dire uh, even Jorah is pretty unwell he took a wound when he was fighting the Dothraki when things broke up um, perhaps we are doomed if we press on but I know for a certainty that we are doomed if we turn back so that's that sort of idea if we look back we are lost and Daenerys thinks, I must be strong for Jorah as well. A knight he may be, but I am the blood of the dragon. So again, that Targaryen faith, that self-belief, it's all about living for others, her faith and her and all the spirituality that she takes onto her shoulders. It's in order to save her people. Um, and they find a little bit of water, and it's not very good water, but it's enough. Um, and Daenerys thinks, have I crossed half the world and seen the birth of dragons only to die in this desert? She would not believe it. So Daenerys defies the survivor bias, and she marches on. And then, miracle, in the distance, on the horizon, they see a city, a white city, and it's a ruin, and they go into the city, and they find... Um, that there's, uh, the, the, the city is nameless and godless, the gates broken, with only wind and flies moving through the streets. So this is an old ruined city that was presumably wiped out by the Dothraki when they were at their most wipey-outiness. And, um, and Jiqui says that when the gods are gone, evil ghosts feast by night. Such places are best shunned. But Daenerys says, nah, nah, fuck it. I'm going to go in anyway. So Daenerys, again, is defying uh, notions of, 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 of gods and such. She's her own goddamn god, and she's not afraid of the city. And so she goes in, and there's a maze of narrow, crooked alleys, and everything's crumbled and cracked. The facades are blank, chalky, and windowless. Everything is white as if the people who lived there had known nothing of colour. This is some sun-baked, sun-bleached, bony-ass, white-dead place. This is the city of the bones. And, like, do you guys remember when, like, Ares Targaryen and Cersei Lannister independently decided that they wanted to build a new capital for Westeros out of white stone? Interesting parallel in terms of, like, white cities. And a nice sort of dichotomy against uh, Ashai, the city on the shadow, like the black dark city. White cities, dark cities, uh, dark stars, Arthur Danes, white swords, dark swords, shadows, uh, swords of morning, swords of evening, all sorts of nice little black and white dichotomies. Um, and so they find all of these like plinths and like these places where statues might be, but the but the plinths are empty. The 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 gods were stolen. The statues were dragged away, and they were left in the in the in the laneway where they keep all the god statues in Vase Dothrak. And devil grass grows beneath the paving stones. And I'm suddenly reminded of remember in the Dark Tower by Stephen King that that like first line about like the man in black crosses the desert and the gun 
gunslinger follows. I remember they're going through desert and like they're burning devil grass or I think it was devil grass. I think it's the same term, like this sort of semi mystical weed that's growing out in the desert. Um, that, that, that's used to generate these sort of special symbols by the man in black. It's interesting stuff. Anyway, so they're going into the city and they find some figs, which I feel like is one of the more biblical foods. I, I feel like figs is a nice sort of like old school, sort of like, uh, like, uh, like a real, real biblical, uh, uh, sustenance. Uh, they find a well with water that's pure and cold but they also find bones and they find ghosts. So it's this nice sort of juxtaposition of both life and death. Um, But Daenerys says, I fear no ghosts. Dragons are more powerful than ghosts. And figs are more important, she thinks. So again, this is this wonderful juxtaposition of like her her faith in herself that's like religious and and certain, but also there's her like pragmatic side, which is like, well, also we're going to fucking die if we don't eat these figs. So we're going to, we're going to brave the ghosts. Um, And yeah, I think like in this chapter, we can really see the beginnings of Daenerys being like an evil tyrant. Like, you know, you can see it like her self-belief that she needed to survive is also that same self-belief that leads to a destructive inability to see other people's humanity when it, it when it is perceived as being against her goals and her interests, I think. Um, so she considers growing out her hair. Her hair is slowly starting to grow back. And she thinks that maybe she should, she should braid her hair when it grows out so that she can remind her people that she, like Drogo, is some kind of Dothraki leader. Um... And apparently, Warms Your Lights in the chat says that figs are great with salmon. So, don't let anyone tell you that Alt X doesn't have great recipe ideas, thanks to Warm Soul Lights. Um, and so, the dragons are trying to sort of flap and flutter around. They're not quite big enough to fly, but they are doing a bit of fluttering. Um, and Daenerys thinks that, wow, it sure would be nice to ride a dragon one day. And spoilers, one day Daenerys will. And she talks about, like, man, wouldn't it be nice to see the whole world spread out below me? Which is kind of similar to uh, Bran, when Bran thinks about flying as a metaphor for his magic powers and being able to see the world below him. And Daenerys thinks that if I flew high enough, I could see the Seven Kingdoms and I could reach up and touch the comet. What's that line that, uh, that that Quaith says to Daenerys? Like, before you touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Interesting sort of repetition of those ideas, touching the light. Of course, you guys are familiar with Icarus, right? Like, Icarus was a fellow who tried to touch the light. He tried to fly up to the sun. And guess what happened? His wings melted. He fell into the Icarian Sea. And now he's got a sea named after him, which is more than most people ever accomplished. So maybe Icarus was right in the end. Take that, Greece. Anyway, so uh, Jorah brings Daenerys a peach, and I'm sure that's some kind of saucy metaphor, but uh, she eats the peach, and it's great, and Daenerys says that the gods were good to bring us to this place. So again, Daenerys's, like relationship with the gods is, is wildly varying from moment to moment. Sometimes she likes the gods, sometimes she's defiant to them, whatever's convenient at the time. Jorah says, there are ghosts everywhere, we carry them with us wherever we go. There are a lot of, like, interesting statements about ghosts in this series. Like, remember when Kyburn says that, like, yeah, like, I saw a ghost once, it was someone who farted on a chair, and it was like there was a person there still. I'm paraphrasing, but the point is that there are lots of sort of 
concepts of ghosts in A Song of Ice and Fire and in George Martin's writing generally. I think George Martin is very interested in in in, in lost loves and in memories and in songs as sort of metaphors for memories. He, he's, intru- he's interested in, like, the effects of past generations on present generations. And so that's something that Jorah talks about here. Jorah talks about his second wife, Liness. And this is sort of Jorah's origin story. This is sort of why Jorah is such a sad sack, is that he fell in love with this woman, Liness, at a tournament. He won the tourney, um, but the relationship didn't go well. Uh, he thought that this woman was a goddess come to earth, the maid herself made flesh. And she was way above his station, but Jorah won her anyway, and it seemed like a dream come true. But, spoiler, it actually sucked. Um, which... I feel like it does reflect on Daenerys' current chapter. I think it's no coincidence. Like, Daenerys is having this apotheosis. Daenerys is having this motion, this moment of becoming a goddess. And at the same time, we have Jorah literally saying, I had this relationship with this woman who was like a goddess to me, but it didn't work out. And I think that Daenerys' apotheosis also may not work out. Um, we talk about the high towers because Lynesse was a high tower, um, and Jorah took Lynesse High Tower back to his home on Bear Island. Uh, but Lynesse did not dig it. It was not a great place for her because she was used to riches. But Bear Island does not have fancy things and bowls and musicians and fancy foods, so Lynesse was unhappy. Um, Jorah drops a little humble brag, saying that, "Oh, I never lacked for women. I had my share of fishwives and crofters' daughters," and I. I think Jorah doth protest too much, um, but Jorah had a first wife before Liness, who was a plain-faced woman who was dutiful rather than passionate, which sort of evokes, like, Elia Martel, perhaps, because, like, Rhaegar was someone who was married to a dutiful but not that cool wife, Elia Martel, and then Rhaegar ran off with the cool, sexy Lyanna Stark that ended tragically, and I think Jorah has a very similar pattern, where, where Jorah had this first wife who was, like, dutiful but not that exciting, and then he ran off with the exciting, beautiful Lyanna Stark. I think that's a pattern that George R. R. Martin is interested in. Um, regrets and guilts and tragic loves and things that, that could not be and star-crossed, lo- star-crossed lo- fucking hell star-crossed lovers. George Martin is interested in those things. Um, uh, Jorah's first wife miscarried three times. There are so many miscarriages and, and, and deaths by birth. Yeah, she, she died after her last miscarriage. So, like, there's, there's so many deaths coming from childbirth in the Game of Thrones story. Um, and then Jorah's father, Gior Mormont, took the black, which again is kind of mysterious. Why did Gior Mormont join the Night's Watch? Um, I don't know. But then there was a battle on Pike when the Greyjoy Rebellion happened, and Jorah Mormont was the second through the walls, um, and that's how he became a knight, because knighthood is unusual in the North. A lot of Northerners aren't interested in being knights, they're not interested in Southern chivalry, but Jorah became a knight due to his prowess and bravery in the Greyjoy Rebellion. Um, and then there was a tournament, and that was where he met Liness. And Liness was a maid half his age. And there's nothing like a tawny to make the blood run hot. But I do wonder, how old was Jorah at this tournament? And how old was Liness? What was this age gap like? There are lots of uncomfortable age gaps in A Song of Ice and Fire. 
Um, and yeah, like it's it it, it kind of feels a little bit like the tournament at the Year of the False Spring when like Rhaegar fatefully named Lyanna his Queen of Love and Beauty. Jorah did like the same thing with with his his woman Lyness, and and it didn't work out. And I think that sort of fits with a pattern of so much of Game of Thrones, which is about taking like fantasy and romance and then questioning it and problematizing it and and and, and subverting it. And I think Jorah's failed romance with Lyness Hightower is sort of part of that. Um, and, and, and one of the interesting things about this tournament where Jorah Mormont was, was riding against all these people and he won the tournament, like he was jousting and he jousted against Jamie and he broke nine lances against Jamie to no result. So, so Jorah and Jamie, they didn't defeat each other. No one won between Jorah and Jamie, but King Robert Baratheon gave Jorah the champion's laurel anyway. So Jamie didn't lose. Jamie did just as well as Jorah, but Jorah got the prize because of Robert Baratheon's decision. And so I feel like that's just a quality, like, fuck you from Robert Baratheon to Jamie Lannister. As though Jamie did not th- have enough things to be bitter about. So that was how Lyness and Jorah got together, and for a while, Jorah was the happiest man in the world. But it didn't last because uh, because Bear Island was disappointing to Lyness, um, and Jorah lived for Lyness's smiles, and it's like this toxic relationship where uh, Jorah was borrowing all this money to like to like indulge Lyness's uh, love for luxuries, but like it just didn't work out, and Jorah did things that it shames him to speak of for gold, and indeed that was selling slaves. Um, and Ned Stark uh, came along to uh, give Jorah a stern talking to for all of the slavery, and then Jorah ran east. Uh, Jorah was so lost to honor that rather than stay and face his judgment, uh, he went into exile. Uh, and he took Lyness with him, but then Lyness left him, and she went to Lys. Uh, and she went into the manse of a merchant prince and is now his chief concubine. Uh, and so Lyness Hightower left Jorah to be a concubine to a Lysine merchant. And Daenerys was horrified and she said, Do you hate her? And Jorah said, Almost as much as I love her. And that's the sad, sad ending to the sad, sad story of Jorah Mormont. After, after that brief, happy moment... The magic was gone between him and Lyness. And doesn't that just say it all about Game of Thrones? The magic was gone. Arthur Dane died. The star fell. Fantasy died. And was replaced by a more cynical, complex reality. And then Daenerys says, What did Lady Lyness look like? And Jorah said, Well, she looked a bit like you, Daenerys. And that's when it gets creepy, because Daenerys is 14 years old, and Jorah's, like, what, middle-aged? So, part of what defines Jorah's loyalty to Daenerys is his sexual attraction to her, which is a bit grody. Um, he loves me as he loved her, Daenerys thought. Not as a knight loves his queen, but as a man loved a woman. She tries to imagine herself in Sir Jorah's arms, kissing him, pleasuring him, letting him enter her... It was no good. When she closed her eyes, her face kept changing into Drogo's. And it's not until Daenerys meets uh, Dario Naharis that she finds a man that she's actually interested in. 
Uh, and so Drogo was a great dude, but Daenerys thinks about how she believes that she's infertile. And what man would want a barren wife? Well, a wife who has dragons. That's the kind of wife that men want in this world in which dragons represent power, I think. Um, and despite Jorah's creepiness, Daenerys thinks that he can never have me. But one day, I can give him back his home and his honor. That much I can do for him. So Daenerys is very altruistic. She she thinks positively of Jorah, despite everything. But then again, she's also being pragmatic, because Jorah is an ally who she needs. Uh, Daenerys needs the, the support and the protection of Jorah. So it's not purely an altruistic thing when she sticks by him. And indeed, when, when Daenerys gets more allies, like, you know, Barristan and Strong Belwas and everyone else, um, Daenerys is less reliant on Jorah, which is probably a good thing for her. Um, so Daenerys is in this ruined city and she sends some of her blood riders to go and scout around the area to see what there is to see. Um, and they, and they keep on chilling out in this ruined city and they harvest fruit from the gardens of the dead, which is such a wonderful line, just juxtaposition of death and life. Um, and they're just chilling and someone else dies when they're bitten by a scorpion or they're stung by a scorpion. Um, one of the blood riders, Rakaro, he comes back from scouting and he says that he passed through the bones of a dragon, a dragon skeleton so immense that he had ridden his horse through its great black jaws. Which is pretty fucking cool. I feel like it's also probably untrue because, like, for a dragon to be there, it would have to have died, like, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And surely, after centuries, the sand would have covered the skeleton, right? Surely. But, I mean, I'm no dune scientist. I'm no wizard of the sands. So, correct me if I'm wrong. So, anyway, they do the scouting, and, like, they find some stuff in the ruins. They find a bracelet with an opal. Uh, Daenerys tells them to repair the gates of the city, just as, like, a pragmatic thing to be defensive in case stuff goes wrong. But then, finally, eventually, Daenerys sees three queerly garbed strangers atop ugly humped creatures, which I suppose are camels. Uh, and Jogo says, Blood of my blood, I have been to the great city of Karth, and I've returned with three strangers who would look on you with their own eyes. And the three strangers introduce themselves. It's Piat Pri, the great warlock, and it is Zaro Zoendaxos, the merchant of the Thirteen, and it is Quaith of the Shadow. They come seeking dragons, and Daenerys Targaryen says, Seek no more, you have found them. And that is the ending of the chapter. So, ladies and gentlemen, we 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 started with some biblical shit and we end with some biblical shit. Because, of course, like the three wise men, you've heard of them. The three wise men came to meet the main man, JC, after he was born in Bethlehem. And there was a star above the manger, just like there's the red comet in the desert in this in this chapter uh these three wise men have come bearing gifts but in this case they 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 they're not the most reliable trustworthy three wise men uh because Zarazo and Daxos is out for his own enrichment and Pietpri wants to make his warlocks immortal off the magical energy of Daenerys Targaryen and Quaith well what does Quaith want
Maybe Quaithe wants to uh, help out the descendant of Quaithe's old lover, uh, Rainer Targaryen, uh, since Quaithe is secretly uh, Alyssa Farman. Or maybe Quaithe is secretly Shiera Seastar, and Shiera Seastar wants to help Daenerys Targaryen because she's got to deal with Bloodraven to try and get Azora High to save Westeros. Or maybe Quaithe is secretly Ashara Dane, and Quaithe is trying to... I don't even know what Ashara would want, but my goodness... If that's not a chapter. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for participating in episode 86 of Game of Thrones Abridged. It's been a ride. It's been a trip. It's been real. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. This was a chapter about life and death and religion and skepticism and faith and pragmatism and belief in oneself. This is a very intense spiritual, lyrical, miracle individual chapter, and I think it's only going to get spicier from here. So we'll do some more episodes in the future. I can't promise when, but uh, I hope it'll be sooner than than the gap last time. Because this was too damn long, wasn't it? It was too damn long since the last chapter, so we'll try and do some more more often. Thanks for tuning in. Stay swifty. Eat your vegetables. Do your cardio. Ring your mum. Have a good one. Cheers. Oh, and subscribe to the podcast. There's like a podcast. You can get it on audio. There's no, there's no like stream problems. And if you want to do me a real swifty, you can, you can rate it five stars on iTunes. I heard that's good for the old, uh, the old, uh, the old uh, algorithms. You know, those metadata's. People live and die by that shit. You know, these all those numbers and stuff. So do a anyway. Yeah, cheers, cheers. Yeah, all right, cheers. Yeah, boy.